Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the IMA and to the fourth lecture in the series, What Can Art Institutions Do? I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we're gathered and by paying my respect to elders past and present. Our speaker this evening is Charles Escher. Charles has been director of the Van Abe Museum in Eindhoven, the Netherlands, since 2004. In 2014, Escher was awarded Bard College's Audrey Ehrman's Award for Curatorial Excellence. The prize honors his endless commitment to rethinking what art can do and what it can be, and we'll hear quite a lot about that this evening, but especially through two incredible projects, Picasso in Palestine and Free Saul Lewitt. Charles' innovative approach to institutions, exhibition, and art can be seen throughout his directorships at institutions like the Van Abbe Arosium in Malmö, and through his curatorship of numerous biennials, including the 31st Sao Paulo Biennial, which took place in 2014, the 4th Guangzhou Biennial in 2002, the 9th Istanbul Biennial in 2005, and the second and third RQWAQ biennials in Ramallah, Palestine. This evening's talk is supported by the Australia Council's International Visitors Program. Thank you, Australia Council. Thanks also to our partners at Monash University for sharing this speaker with us this evening, Charles. <laughs> We're also graciously supported on an ongoing basis by the Australia Council and by Arts Queensland, so thanks as always to those core funders. So Charles is a curator and a director whose experimental and visionary approach to the profession has been a real source of inspiration for Johan and I since we started working in the field. So it's a real honor and pleasure to welcome him here to the Institute of Modern Art. So please join me in, in bringing him up to give us a lecture this evening. Thanks, Charles. Eileen, Johan, everybody, um, thank you very much for those kind words. Um, and, um, and thanks for having me here. I think I'm going to be the last international guest of the Australia Council, from what I hear in Melbourne. So um, I, hope, I hope that wasn't anything to do with me, that they cancelled the programme. But um, uh, nevertheless, it's, uh, it's, it's been really interesting to, to be here. And I spent about six days in Melbourne meeting people um, there and, um, and sort of trying, trying to uh, discover a place that I'd last been actually in 1997, which was a hugely long time ago, frighteningly long time ago. Um, and also meeting people that I'd known in the 90s um, there again and seeing how they developed. Um, and then I had the, the great opportunity, I mean, I think really sort of blessing really yesterday to go out to Stradbrook Island um, uh, and to um, meet with um, some of the uh, indigenous people who were, who were working there, particularly Dale Rusker, who, who I met together with Richie, who's here, and, and, um, and Josh, um, to talk about the, the question of the indigenous, which is something that has been interesting me for some time in relationship to a project that I did, um, which Aileen mentioned, in, in, uh, in Sao Paulo in Brazil. Um, where obviously the sort of politics of colonialism there are, are, are quite uh, interconnected with the question of what to do with the Amazon, how to exploit it, you know, very much questions that, that also I think register within a country like Australia. Um, uh, and so 
putting two and two together, we sort of started talking. And um, actually, Dale Rusker, who's, who lives in One Mile, which is the, a community um, just, just near to the port uh, of Dunwich, um, uh, has produced, actually on the 4th of May 2015, a declaration of Aboriginal nationality. And I thought I'd actually like to start, because we, we spoke about this and also spoke about how it needs to be disseminated. So I actually wanted to start by reading it out to you. Um, and then hopefully for this to gather pace. Because for me, and I think it relates to some of the questions that I'm going to talk about in terms of how we deal with states and how perhaps the reinvention of the state is the thing that's the most urgent um, task that we have in the early 21st century. The re re reinvention of the state, the, the, the pulling apart of ideas of nation and states, um, what the state does for us, what the Australia Council does for us in terms of inviting me here as a representative of the state, um, but how happy we are to, to, on the left, simply defend the state and on the right, simply to destroy the state or at least to make the state in the, in the image of neoliberalism. Um, and maybe we can have some other kind of vision of the state. And in a sense, this declaration offers the possibility to step towards that. So not only for the situation here, but also for the situation internationally, this declaration seems to be quite significant. So it's dated the 4th of May, 2015, Declaration of Aboriginal Nationality. We make this declaration to reinitiate our own independent process as Aboriginal people in developing an organized and united position in the ongoing fight to take our place among the nations and peoples of the world, not beneath them. We, the Aboriginal people, are the original owners of the lands now known as Australia. Our ownership over these lands is inherited through our ancestral bloodline connection to country and our ancient system of customary law. Our customary law binds us together through common principles and values of national identity. Our national identity entitles us all to the rights afforded to any nation. Being a nation entitles us to, to continue administering our ancient customary law to decide and control the future of our lands and lives. Our system of customary law bestows upon us our unique national identity, totally separate and not recognized by the colonial Australian state. We, the Aboriginal nation, do not accept colonial Australian law and its claims to authority and control over our peoples and our lands. We, the original owners of us, Australia, commit to developing a treaty between and establishing a unified assembly of our many tribal nations, uniting us under the shared principle of Aboriginal nationality and ancient law. So as you see, that's, uh, that's uh, the beginnings, I think, 4th of May, it's only a couple of weeks ago, the beginnings maybe of a kind of campaign which might shift some of the debates um, and is also familiar uh, in some um, indigenous campaigns elsewhere in the world that also might join up. But I think for me particularly, it's interesting because it offers a perspective from this place to look at the rest of the world. So rather than a question of catch-up or a question of how do you become more European or catch up more with the latest uh, modes in New York or Berlin, this seems to be a question about what, ha what happens here and how can what happened here reflect the rest of the world and reflect on the rest of the world and the rest of the world's relationships. And maybe that's a kind of nice topic to begin. Um, um, I am going to talk, I hope not for too long, but it'll probably be about 40, 45 minutes. I'll, I'll rush some things, and if you get bored, um, maybe particularly Johan and Aileen can tell me to shut up, and I'll, I'll go on um, to another track. Um, but what I'm going to, I feel like I sort of have to do is to sketch out um, some more general principles in answer to this question of what can art institutions do. Um, perhaps one of the things that art institutions 
do is can distribute these kind of things because we're part of the public sphere and in the public sphere um, we have access to certain voices, voices that are not mediated by, um, by the media, that are not, uh, not limited by the ownership of the media and the way that uh, the specific objection, uh, objectives of the media um, are not answered by, uh, by distributing this kind of information, um, nor are they necessarily by uh, the, the, the representative democratic process which is again has its own limitations and is, in, and is indeed part of the, the issues of how we live together that maybe this kind of um, uh, declaration also um, addresses the idea that maybe representative democracy itself is something that needs to be unpicked as we unpick this relationship to the state. Um, so, so the art institution, one of the things the art institutions can do is to speak about these things, to speak about them through the voices of artists, but not only through the voices of artists, I think also through the voices of different members of that community who have voice, you know, who, want, who want to have voice. Um, and maybe to say something which I'm just beginning to think about at the moment, there's, there's an interesting concept in, in art, in some more recent forms of art, developed by a theorist called Stephen Wright, who I'll quote a little bit later on, um, where he talks about the, the status of art as a double ontology, he says. A double ontology, a thing which is both itself and something else. Or in art's case, he says both art and the thing itself. Yeah, and he's interested in this idea of something having two statuses. So an art project, which is also a completely real and realized project in the world, but also stands for art, yeah, if you can imagine it. I'll maybe give some examples of it later on. And I've kind of been playing with this for a, a, a while in my head and thinking, well, what happens if an art institution, if one of the things an art institution can do is be a double ontology or perform as though it is? an institution which manifests a double ontology, an institution which is both an art institution and something else entirely different, an institution which does things in the world, which privileges art with a capital A, and at the same time allows these kind of declarations to be made without worrying about definitions, without worrying about, oh, that's not our concern, but simply to be a platform for certain things to be said. Um, and I think we've been moving very much in those directions. Yeah, we've been always trying to, one of the processes of the 20th century has been about trying to open the field of art as, as wide as possible yeah, to as many different kinds of practices. But always with this figure of the artist as a sort of pivotal role in that, the one that's defining it. And maybe one of the things that art institutions can do, can, that galleries can do even actually, is to kind of be something else as well as the thing itself. Yeah. And, and by being that something else, we then start creating needs to define what that thing should be. What is it that we want to be, as well as an art institution? Not instead of an art institution, not to leave art behind, but to take art with us along the journey, but also to be that something else. So that Double Ontology Institute is maybe one of the other things, as well as simply stating these things, but also justifying the statement of, of something like this framed in terms of that idea of being the thing itself, the art institution, and something else entirely. Um, now, I'm going to start a few slides, if I can find my cursor. should come on. I think it'll come on in a minute. It was working fine, of course, before we even started. Why doesn't it do? Should I just unplug it? Turn it on and off again. 
The computer, no, no way. It'll take like 10 minutes. This is, it's overloaded. That's really weird. At last. I'll try not to. Um, <laughs> um, just let me make sure that I think it's okay. Uh, okay, good. We're off. Um, okay, I'm going to, to talk about the Van Abbe Museum, which I'll show you some pictures of uh, in a minute. But I'm going to delay that moment for a short time. Um, because I, I'm, I'm talking about the Van Abbe Museum um, as uh, a museum collection. So you can project it onto the GOMA or the Queensland Art Gallery here if you want, or, or any other institution which you know of that has an art collection. Maybe... maybe a modern art collection, but it doesn't matter so much, I don't think. I think an art collection in general is fine. Um, so one of the questions would be, what do you do with a collection? So again, trying to answer this idea of what can an art institution do, a question I was given by Aileen and Johan, um, to say, well, one of the things it can do is deal with its own history and its own holdings, its own, the thing that it is, at least if it's, if it's a museum. But equally well, I think an institution like this has a certain archive, and that archive is something which can also be rethought. Um, so if we have, particularly museums, are institutions of memory, yeah? they basically are there, they, they, they say, they have, they have strange appurtenances, strange qualities, yeah, museums. One of the strange things is their relationship to time. It's a very unpolitical, almost an inhuman time. Yeah? It's the time of eternity. When something comes into a mu museum collection, however, rhetorically, the idea is that you should keep it forever. I mean, that's hubristic, of course, in the way that humans are, yeah, that they can think in terms of that time of forever. Um, but if you're talking about forever in the, full, in the direction forward from where we are now, the present, it kind of also implies all that stuff behind. Yeah, so, some, so somehow you have, and this is where the Universal Museum comes in, this idea that it should be forever past and forever future that is captured in the museum. Of course, also what it does is it, is it says that the objects that come into the museum are the ones that we determine at whatever point that we is defined. The ones that cer certain people determine are worthwhile keeping forever. Yeah? So there's a gatekeeping function. Like, we can't keep everything, though sometimes if you look at the modernist archive, you'll say that they've kept almost everything, which is a problem, maybe. But nevertheless, or well, 20th century, yeah, we, we, we're sort of stacking up this stuff to keep forever in, uh, in rapidly, uh, rapid, rapid, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, a sort of um, a logarithmic curve, you yeah, which, know, which, uh, which goes ever higher somehow in terms of the scale of what's being kept, what's being let in those doors. Um, but nevertheless, that idea of preservation forever is something which is, which is quite peculiar to, to the museum, I think. But the other thing that the museum is, if it, if it is about keeping these things forever, it's not only about keeping the materiality of them, but keeping them physically. I mean, in some cases, in the most, the museums, the most ancient uh, uh, kind of, 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 uh, of collections, sometimes it does come down to that. You know, they don't really know what these things were used for and they have no sense of its context. But mostly the idea is to try and show these works in some kind of context, in some kind of way in which we as a public, because museums open their doors to a public, to, to users, to people that use them in different ways, um, that there should be some way in which they are, um, they are configured so that 
we can understand they had a role in relationship to humanity, in relationship to humans. It's even biological collections, but certainly art collections are particular in that way of really focusing on the idea of, of society. So, so the, the memory of the object is also something which is preserved, not just the object itself, what is encoded in that object. So these institutions are ones of memory and ones of forever. Um, and they're also, by nature of that, and perhaps that's where these two come together, yeah? the idea of projecting long-term developments and the idea of memory, you know, things that happen, they are inevitably institutions of history, yeah? history, which is a very ideological idea in a way, history, yeah? the fact that we tell the past in a certain way to say that what happened on this day was important because a battle happened or a king died or whatever in the most banal version of history, and what happened the day after was not important because there was no battle and no king died. So that history is about an implication of what's significant in time and what's significant in the past. So writing history, or even rewriting history, becomes something that museums are fundamentally engaged in, perhaps the only institutions that are really so dedicated, even more so than, our, than history departments in universities, I would suggest, because they have this relationship to a tangible object, which is, which is harder to rewrite, harder to write on than, than a history book. So therefore their responsibility and their weight because of this projection of forever in relation to history is quite significant. You know, the museums really tell history somehow. They have, a, they have an aura of authenticity about them because they have these objects, which is greater than one historian's opinion. Um, so if we are institutes of memory and therefore because we have this projection institutes of history, um, then we have to think about history. Now, there are many theories about history. I'm not going to go through all of them. I'm just going to mention the one that's been important for us in Van Abbe Museum. And it's this one, which is a sort of fundamental, um, I suppose, uh, a sort of primal text, a primary text, maybe a primal text even, a primary text in, uh, in, in how we have thought through the collection and much of what we've done and the examples, which I hope to get on if I'm quick enough, I hope to get onto, um, are drawn very much from this and from a couple of other quotes that we'll go through. Um, so let's just read this, this together for a moment, or slowly, and just try and unpack this quote. So this is written by Walter Benjamin. Uh, Benjamin is, um, you know Benjamin, no, most of you? I don't, yeah, is it okay? Um, so it's written just before he commits suicide on the French-Spanish border. Yeah? So you know some of, the, some of that story, but that's in 1940, that's when the, um, the uh, Pétain government is, is establishing itself in the south, of, so the National Socialist, French National Socialist government is establishing itself in the, in the south of France, the north of France is occupied by German troops by that point. And, um, and so obviously he's trying, he's in, he's in an existential crisis, let's say that, and it's quite obvious. He's Jewish, by the way, that's kind of an important aspect of that, but not the only important aspect of his existential crisis. Um, and he writes this, he writes a lot of notes. Benjamin never ever finishes anything. He's, he's a very sort of sympathetic philosopher in a certain way, or cultural theorist, whatever we call him, um, because he never really gets to the point somehow. He's always like havering and checking and saying things which are contradictory. So it's kind of possible to find an awful lot of things in Benjamin. Not, not exactly everything, but an awful lot of things. But nevertheless, in finding those awful lot of things, some things really shine out. And one of the things that shines out from this book, which was, of course, unfinished, like almost everything, um, is the, the concept of, is a book called The Concept of History, so pretty much on our topic. Uh, and he says this about it. To articulate the past historically does not mean to recognize it the way it really was. 
Now, if you think about that sentence for a moment and think about the museum as the Institute of History or the Institute of Memory Stroke History, that's an incredibly liberating sentence, isn't it? I mean, to imagine that you don't actually have to bother to account for the way things really were, even if you lived through them, because in a contemporary art museum, you're often dealing with stuff that you were actually alive at when it was made. But somehow it's not the task, what he's saying, and I think this is absolutely true, to articulate that past, your own past, or a past of the 20th century, or a past going further back, to articulate that past, to reconstruct those memories, to make them live again, it's not about recognizing it the way it really was. So what is it about? It means to seize hold of a memory as it flashes up at a moment of danger. It means to seize hold of a memory as it flashes up at a moment of danger. In passing, we could say this flashes up is very much related to Benjamin's own thinking about photography. Yeah? I mean, you're talking about 1940s cameras, so those big things with the huge flash coming out the top. Yeah, it goes bang. And, and, uh, and he's very much thinking in those terms. And maybe they're a bit more sophisticated by 1940, but nevertheless, you get the idea. It's analog photography. So the flash is really important. Um, so this idea of flashing up sort of relates to a, a, a connection to, to the technology of his time. But fundamentally, it means this idea of something being lit because of what's happening to the subject who's looking back at history. So history is written, is articulated not as the way it really was, but what occurs to us at a certain moment, and that moment is called the moment of danger. Now, I would suggest that that moment of danger is the moment that is, is something which is a, a continuous presence that there is never a moment which is not a moment of danger. The nature of the danger changes. But I think if we, if we understand history as being, as being this sort of line, you know, this line that's drawn from the past into the future through the present, then on that line there is a continuous tone of danger, if you like. We can mix sound and light metaphors for a moment. You know, on that line there is a continuous presence of danger. The danger changes in its nature, but not in its quality, not in its existence. The next sentence is not so interesting, but the, the, the one starting the danger affects is worthwhile reading. The danger, so this moment of danger, affects both the content of the tradition and its receivers. So the danger affects, so changes, yeah, makes, has, has implications for, yeah, both the content of the tradition, in other words, the history itself, in other words, the moment of danger changes everything that was in that history before, changes the content of it. So it changes, you think about artworks, it means that some artworks are significant and some artworks are not, but also it means that within individual artworks, the content might change. I mean, we know that from conservation departments because content is always changing in artworks yeah? and you're always sort of battling, those of you that might uh, have experience with such things in museums. Um, but the content itself, of course, is much wider. It changes the content of tradition and it also affects us, its receivers, the receivers of that tradition. So he sort of reversed the, the, the arrow for a moment where he's doing this, this kind of famous angel of history thing of looking back and saying what's flashing before us. Then he reverses it here and says the danger affects its receivers. So we're receiving history. You know, we're sort of standing there mute and receiving it, but we're affected by what we see, by this flashing up. The same threat hangs over both, that of becoming a tool of the ruling classes. Obviously, Benjamin is coming out of a Marxist tradition, but nevertheless, the idea that the threat to the content of the tradition, to the receivers, and, and, and of the ability of us to 
uh, understand the moment of danger and therefore to see what, what is important to us in history in order to deal with that moment of danger is the, 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 the threat to that is that we become a tool of the ruling classes and therefore we can't do that operation. Yeah? We can't be affected by the history. We can't be affected by the content of tradition. We are, we are blocked. And I think that kind of, I don't know, that feels to me to be a very, a very smart and accurate description of the world today. <laughs> the way that, exact, and the ruling classes, we can all sort of project our ruling classes, but we're talking about, um, uh, about the people who have power, essentially. It's very you know, straightforward. I don't think it's, in many cases, it's not politicians or representative democracy, but there are people that have power, there are people that wield power. Um, and I think this idea of cutting off the possibility of seeing history in the light of the moment of danger as it flashes up is what happens. And therefore, and this is a kind of instruction, it's an instruction to me as a museum director, an instruction maybe to certain artists who might believe in this, it's, it's this next sentence is really just very straightforward. Yeah? In every era, so there now as well, the attempt must be made anew, so we've got to do it all over again, so it's not that, that we can ever achieve it, you know, this was very perceptive, I think, of him, that simply, however much he might have tried to achieve this, it has to be done all over again, and probably we could understand with different materials and in different, and using different methodologies, so there's not a repetition. In every era, the attempt must be made anew to rest tradition, history, this thing that's going, shooting out into the past, rest tradition away from a conformism that is about to overpower it. And that's nice, this idea somehow that everything is precarious, yeah? the, the idea that things are about to be overpowered always, but that the attempt has to be to wrest it away from that. And so if you can imagine reading this as a, as a new museum director in 2004, a long time ago now, when I took over the Van Abba Museum, to reading this was, um, um, I mean, it was liberating, of course, because you didn't have to account for the past as you knew it, but also it was kind of daunting, because how do you wrest it away from the conformism and how do you attempt to reach that conformism? But that's what I'll come on to in some examples. Um, how am I doing for time? Is it uh, okay? Um, so what is the moment of danger today? What is the moment of danger that we are engaged in or that we can perceive today? Well, I think we can define it in all sorts of ways. It's not, uh, it's not something that, um, that, that, that there is really a consensus about. But the way I'd like to do it is, is, is to uh, take the first paragraph from the Accelerationist Manifesto, which is a manifesto of uh, accelerationism, um, which is a movement that, uh, that or a, a group of philosophers, really, who are sort of attempting to, to think about how we might... Um, escape from our current conditions of uh, servitude to uh, um, a, 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 an economic paradigm, essentially. And one way, the old way, the leftist way, the social democratic way, has been to try and either, either negotiate, negotiate with it or resist it to the point of revolution. I think neither of those really work very well. We know that revolution has kind of got messed up. 
and that, um, and that, uh, and that social democracy is a complete waste of time, I think even worse than anything else in the political sphere, I have to say. Um, and, uh, and so the interesting thing would be maybe to try and accelerate it so that, in a sense, almost like over-identification as well, that you take the consequences of what's happening and then push them to points where they maybe start to break down. And even that they are breaking down anyway, but maybe we can, our little contribution as human beings can be to make it go a little bit faster. It's very shorthand for a big argument that they're trying to make, but basically this idea of going with the flow rather than going against it and seeing the logical dis dis disconnects in the system that we have rather than in trying to defend the old system, the imagined old system. Um, so it would be like handing all the money to George Brandis rather than only allowing him to have a quarter of it or whatever. It would be saying, no, why don't you take all of it and decide all of it? Because maybe that would force something more interesting than this kind of social democratic compromise where he still keeps the Australia Council going, but on, its, on, the, on sort of broken legs. So that would be a kind of accelerationist attitude to your current problems here with, with arts funding. Um, so they decide in that, in that first... Uh, um, first uh, he's from Brisbane, isn't he? So maybe it's not such a good idea. Maybe you'll come out really well in this uh, situation. Uh, <laughs> um, so um, the, uh, the, the, um, the first paragraph says this. I shall read that very quickly. At the beginning of the second decade of the 21st century, global civilization faces a new breed of cataclysm. Again, it's kind of a bit like, um, like uh, um, Walter Benjamin. Is, it, it suggests a new breed of cataclysm. In other words, there have been breeds of cataclysm before. Yeah, it's just, as, again, it's something which, like the moment of danger, is constantly arising. But this new breed of cataclysm, what is the nature of it? These coming apocalypses ridicule the norms and organizational structures of politics which were forged in the birth of the nation-state, the rise of capitalism, and 20th century of unprecedented war, war, wars. Ridicule the norms and organizational structures of the nation-state, of capitalism, and of the world of warfare. Yeah, or world of warcraft, maybe, as well. Um, that, that, uh, that this is the, 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 the conditions. And they go on to say that, that you know, fundamentally, the breakdown of the planetary climactic system is the fundamental cataclysm that we're facing, and also define that as a fundamental one. Terminal resource depletion of water, particularly water, and also other energy re, uh, res um, reserves, um, which offer, the, the, as they said, the prospect of mass starvation, collapsing economic paradigms, and new hot and cold wars, and the continued financial crisis, um, which has led governments to embrace the paralyzing death spiral policies of austerity, privatization, mass unemployment, stagnating wages, increasing automation in production process, including intellectual labor, to render um, the capitalism incapable of maintaining current standards of living for even the former middle classes of the global north. Um, so, in, in other words, everybody who under social democracy is desperately trying to keep going is actually the ones that are equally as, as under threat as are the poor of Jakarta or the, or the, or the Aborigine in, in, uh, in, in Australia um, or the poor of uh, Sao Paulo where they have water maybe twice a day now but nobody will admit, uh, sorry, twice a week, but nobody will actually admit the kind of water shortages that are involved. Um, I've got a little... Um, a couple of um, visual aids to sort of define some of this uh, this crisis and try and try and um, allow you to think about it. 
we can go through this quite quickly, but it's a, it's a wor it's worthwhile uh, scheme to, uh, um, to, to bring up. You can find it very easily on the internet. Um, this one was done in 2003, and I've got a later update, with, which is uh, a human, it is uh, a graph which charts human development uh, and the Human Development Index, which is something that was developed by the United Nations and includes uh, life expectation, education, and standard of living. So not only economic, but also education and life. Um, on the basis of human development across countries, so each one of these circles is a country. Um, and then on the other axis is uh, the ecological footprint of a single citizen of those countries. So the ecological footprint of the country divided by the number of citizens. Um, as you can see, maybe I can just, can you hear, still hear me? So you basically have, this is Asia, green is the uh, Middle East, I think. It goes up as a red is, uh, is North America, blue is, is Europe, green is Australasia. Um, and this charts it from 1975 to 2003. Um, anything above this line, is ecologically unsustainable. Anything to the right of this line is a human development in, in index which is inadequate. So either life expectancy is not, not adequate according to the median uh, education or, uh, or uh, income. Um, so what you see is, is the countries here are doing well in terms of lifestyle, so they're countries that probably all us come from, but are not sustainable. Yeah, basically, their ecological footprint is not sustainable. This is an ecological footprint which is sustainable. In other words, where there's a renewal of the resources that are being uh, eaten up. So ideally, you would want people to be of a high development index and below this level of human development. Can you guess which country that is? It's in the news at the moment because there's a Biennale there. It's Cuba. The only country which is in the box is Cuba in 2003. But you can also see the direction of travel. If you trace these little um, uh, dotted lines, you see what's happened between 1975 and 2003. So this, for instance, is China. Um, this is, uh, this is Croatia, this is the South African Republic, that sort of doubled back around the time, around apartheid. Um, this is Australia, which is kind of interesting, because it actually goes down, it's going in the right direction for a while, uh, and then also goes almost in the right direction, but then shoots up again in the 2000s, and is now more or less back, still a bit lower, but more or less back where it started. Australia's not the only country that actually does that on the whole graph, so that's interesting, it's to do with mining and to do with uh, um, the direction of the United States is pretty clear, in that sense, um, which is obviously still a major power in the world. Um, this is 2012. Unfortunately, Cuba has now departed from the livable zone. It's no longer there. And as you can see, there's been some movement in the, uh, even the United States, which is here, which has gone from very high to high, which is interesting in the last decade. Um, but some of these have moved down the way. Um, it's the same scale, actually, 12 is the top. So, so the, 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 very, um, the very, very unsustainable have actually come down. There's been some positive movement. But there's also been a movement here, where things have moved away from this corner. So in the last decade, we've gone from something which goes like this to something which goes a little bit more like that. Yeah, but nevertheless, 
not, not overly encouraging, but not impossible. So what can art institutions do about this moment of danger, as it's been defined, um, or about other moments of dangers that we can imagine, some that the Accelerationist Manifesto mentions in terms of financial or capitalist uh, problematics. Yeah? Um, I'm going to try and talk a few examples now, some of the ones that Aileen mentioned and perhaps some others. I think I might skip some because I've got sort of different slides. Um, and I'll try, I guess, and finish around um, 20 past 7 or something like that. 20, 25 past 7, is that okay? Um, so I'm going to talk largely about the Van Abbe Museum. I can, if, we, if, we, if you're interested, but I won't do it in the talk, talk a little bit about Sao Paulo Biennale, which is a Biennale that I did last year. In, in, uh, yeah, in Sao Paulo, um, but, um, but we can, uh, but, but we'll focus, it's quite good to focus, I think, on a single institution that I'm intimately involved in, have been running now for 10 years. I understand you heard, some of you might have been at Annie Fletcher's talk, which was a couple of months ago, uh, and so heard some of this thing. I'm trying not to repeat myself. If, if I do, I, I asked her what she, was, what she talked about, so I'm trying to not do the same things that she did, but if I do uh, at any point, then please just tell me and I will skip it. Um, so this is the Van Abbe Museum, uh, as it was built in 1936 as an institute of memory. Um, say a lot about the building, it's basically a sort of classic Kunsthalle-type building for that period. Um, many were built, it has a, a certain nobility um, as a space, but quite small. And then, like um, most museums in 2000, after a long struggle actually, this opened in 2003, slightly been changed by 2014 when, when this uh, photograph was taken. But this was a, um, a, a building which trebled the size, also of course trebled the ecological footprint of the institution, yeah, and didn't really take account of anything to do with like, ecological footprints when it was built. Um, but kind of just reproduce the same spaces. What was interesting was that I think you see in museums generally in the period, um, in, in the period of the 30s, going back to this, um, that there's a real sort of in, invention of space. Yeah? I mean, these weren't white cubes necessarily at the beginning, but there was a kind of an idea that the space, the art space itself required certain things, top-lit galleries, a sort of uh, 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 an enfilade space where one room led into another, where there was a sort of real invention of space. What we see here, and I think generally, is, is, is just an upscaling of the space itself. So even the Tate Turbine Hall, in some ways, which is perhaps one of the most innovative spaces that we've got, has been, has been defined like that by artists. But itself, it's, an, it's a leftover from an industrial process which no longer functions. So it's not really an invention of a space. It's a, it's a reoccupation of a space. And I think it's, it's wonderful, and it's allowed things to happen that would never have happened without it. But that's the kind of most positive example I can think if you, if you um, ever have the chance to go to New York and go to the Museum of Modern Art and see their extensions, they're basically just toppling one white cube on top of another. There's really very little invention of space, and it's the same with the Van Abbe Museum. So basically you've got a kind of, uh, uh, you know, to put it crudely, you've got a sort of different versions of stacking of these same spaces over and over again. So it's 
a bit like you would sort of you know stick to apartment design or something from from the 1930s and never change it. So you know the kitchen would still be for a servant or something like that. You still have a little bedroom inside it as you do in Scottish apartments or sort of posh Scottish apartments. Um, and and you would you know you would the idea of a sort of family kitchen or something like that that would never have been invented. Um, or the idea of a loft space yeah, would never have been invented because we'd have just stuck to this thing because it was so good in the 1930s. And in a way that's a bit like the museum spaces themselves. They kind of haven't, unless, except in a few odd exceptions, haven't really reinvented themselves. So we got this, this increase in the building in 2003, which was also, in, in some senses, in those days, I think the 90s, which is where I started to learn to be a curator, I guess, um, that was the, 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 the thrust, and that was maybe part of a whole economic situation, the thrust was towards um, growth in a very linear way, you know, simply getting bigger. And that, and that getting bigger was almost like a sort of disease. It was like elephantitis, yeah? because there wasn't really a figuring out of different roles. Um, and I think now we're into the process where that infrastructure, at least in, in, in Western Europe and in, in the United States, now we don't really need any more infrastructure. I mean, there's still a huge drive to build more infrastructure, but it's hard to say that that's necessary. Actually, what we need to do is look at functionality and look at what we do rather than how big we are. Yeah, and, and to get away from this sort of elephantitis of simply thinking that because art is getting bigger and because we're building this archive up, you know, this idea of keeping everything forever is getting more and more substantial. So therefore the answer is to make more and more real estate until eventually, I mean, certainly in, in Northwestern Europe, the, the danger is that we become kind of, all we become Venice. You know, Venice is basically a, a city which has become a museum. It used to be a functioning city. It used to have a role in the world. Um, and maybe that's closer to our future, I sometimes think, if we can't continue on the way we're going, than, than some other speculations of what the future might be, at least in that corner of the world. Um, so, so the question of functionality, I think, does come in. Um, and I'm going to go back to a couple of quotes, and then I'm going to go to the examples. But I think that for us in the museum, at least at the moment, there are two leitmotifs in a way that are, that are, um, that are shaping our programming, yeah? shaping what we think is worthwhile doing with the limited resources and the reduced resources. We had a huge cut in funding from a, um, an, un, an uh, unsympathetic government um, in 2012 and there's been no real replacement by the private sector in that. So basically most institutions have downscaled, including ourselves. We do one less exhibition a year and I mean, nobody, nobody notices, which is also interesting. <laughs> nobody actually says, well, you do one exhibition a year. It's just like, oh, well, you do three and you used to do four. And I didn't realize, gosh. Um, because so many things are happening that actually one institution doesn't need to sustain itself. I think if we, had one, if we closed for half a year, nobody would actually notice in a certain way. Yeah? Um, because what, you know, the way you make impact is not through this continuous presence very much anymore, which is also interesting. It's, uh, it's more to do with um, a certain moment of media attention or whatever. Um, but obviously that redefines or, or questions the relationship to the state. And as I said, starting with this declaration of Aboriginal nationality and also thinking about um, other questions to do with the state that we'll come on to, uh, this has been very important. And the other thing is the user. So to um, fill out a little bit the state, I want to read this quote out because I think this is quite interesting from a, a text by Gerald Raunig, who's a, um, a, uh, in, in some ways one of the most interesting theorists. Sometimes it's a bit flat, 
uh, or lacks uh, the sort of color that art can bring. You know, he needs he needs to be closer to artists sometimes. I think to, to, so it can be a bit more messed up. Um, but nevertheless, it's sort of very precise. And again, it has this sort of Benjaminian quality of a kind of instruction. And I guess I kind of like that. I'm quite obedient in a certain way. So you know, the, the, if somebody says this is what it should be, it's really helpful for me. Even if I say no, you're wrong. But I think some, 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 somehow the instructive mode yeah, is actually really really helpful in terms of debate you know I don't mind using should because I think that creates people then kicking back and saying well why should I so this sort of verb should is not a bad thing to use at least in the in a in a in a dialogic form it should be like this why and then you can start talking if you say it could be like that which is the language that we tend to use in the art field then you end up going yeah and it could be like anything else you know so it's it's better to be instructive um Gerald Raonic is talking here about the state and he says it is, it, it, it is exactly at the crisis related rupture of the art institution that an offensive becomes iman imaginable. He's talking about the crisis related rupture in the terms that we talked about for instance climate change, crisis of capitalism but also the art institution itself no longer really having the same basis in society as it used to have and that's a long argument about post-Cold War and what, the, what funding from the state actually meant in terms of producing state art um, and, uh, and whether the art institution has a public in a certain way if there's no longer a bourgeoisie in the old uh, uh, sense, but there's a, there's a loss of a middle class, there's a flight to the top with what's called the 1% and a flight to the bottom. Um, and so the kind of the, the obvious group that might support an institution in the old days is, is departing. That's how he describes it and he says, in this crisis related up, uh, uh, a rupture, an offensive becomes manageable, but becomes imaginable, sorry, which cons consciously impels the transformation from public institutions, which is that old model which served the bourgeoisie, yeah? going all the way back to the Louvre and, and in the post-French revolutionary period, yeah, that, that, that narrative of museums which we inherit from the late 18th century, um, which consciously impels the transformation from public institutions to institutions of the common. The point is to reorganize remainders of the civil public sphere and of society conceived as social democratic, you go, that's horrible, horrible word again, um, in a certain, uh, uh, the point remains to reorganize the remainders of that old system, yeah, that system of funding, the remainders of the Australia Council funding system, if you like. Yeah, the thing that's being dismantled now, we see being dismantled before our eyes, but it's not yet fully gone. Yeah? You know, George Brandis hasn't taken 100%, he's only taken 25%, I think. So there's 75% left. So we probably could imagine that 50% will be gone in five years' time, and that in 10 or 15 years' time, 100% will be gone. What are we going to do in that inter in interim period? In, in, in the, where the remainders of that civil public sphere and of social democracy still, still cling on, at least in, in, in societies like this one or like the Netherlands. In a certain way, this implies, this reorganizing the remainders, implies no less than newly inventing the state, specifically because and while it still rudimentarily functions. Or rather, it implies inventing a new form of state apparatus while the old one still exists. This reinvention of the state apparatus from below can only succeed as re-territorializing the institution. That re-territorializing is a, is, a, is a philosophical jargon, yeah? It means, it means comes from Deleuze and Guattari, 
um, and they talk about deterritorializing and re-territorializing. What it means very simply is taking something out of the context in which it's found, the field in which it's found, for instance, art or something like that, and taking it out, that's deterritorializing, and re-territorializing is putting it in somewhere else, kind of like plug-in. You, know, you can sort of just plug things in in different contexts. And by doing that, you actually create a dynamic and a possibility of change. So it's not about changing the thing from within, changing the whole field, it's just about pulling it out. So when I talk about this double ontology or some of the projects that we're doing, I think that re-territorializing is something that's somewhere in the background, you know, something, something that's informing our, help, our thinking. Unfortunately, you know, there's always this jargon which is used which then makes it very unapproachable, but actually it's just simply, it's about plugging something in where it doesn't belong and seeing what contacts it makes with the electricity cables. Yeah, it's like taking a European plug and trying to get it into an Australian system. Yeah, eventually, if you can do it, then something, something will happen, and we're not quite sure what. Um, so in a certain way, this is the blah, blah, the re-territorializing the institution. If it is tried out, if the re-territorializing this is, so where you plug it in, yeah, where, which connections you make, if this re-territorializing is tried out from many different sides, in small contexts, in a micro-measure, and in radical openness to questions of organization. Perhaps it seems far-fetched to expect art institutions to reinvent the state. Probably that's what you were thinking when he first proposed it in this text. It's a little bit much, isn't it? You know, I mean, all of this, I think, sometimes feels a little bit much. Feels a little bit much to me, all these expectations. But I don't know what else to do with them, because if we don't accept them, then we just accept everything the way it is. Yeah, so the moment you start to ask a question is the moment you go down a slippery slope, which you end up, at least I've ended up, here, because there hasn't been anywhere else to go. It's very hard to stop it once you started it. But also, if you don't start it, then you end up doing what an awful lot of institutions do, which is chase their tail trying to satisfy politicians and visitor numbers and financial targets, which are really nothing at all to do with why they were there in the first place. So how do you get out of that? And getting out of it, and that's why it's, it's sometimes difficult, getting out of it implies taking on the whole thing. Yeah? So perhaps it seems far-fetched to expect art institutions to reinvent the state. The expectation may not meet with success either. So that's a bit of a breather. Yeah, okay, so we're not, it's not, not only that we have these expectations, but we have to be successful. Okay, it's worth the, the trial is worth the energy and worth the effort. The expectation may, may not meet with success either. But in comparison with other state institutions, I think this is interesting. I was talking about this in Melbourne a bit. Um, in comparison with other state institutions, such as institutions of education, science, or research, and I was, we were talking together with Nikos Papastriadis, who you probably know from, from Melbourne, who's a very old friend of mine. Um, that, um, that, that we, uh, we were talking about how this education, science uh, and research institutions are being instrumentalized to such a degree that there's very little space and the space that might exist, the space for a kind of inquiry, the space to read out the declaration of Aboriginal nationality in public maybe exists in the art institution more than it does in those kind of institutions whether it's a particular research center in a university or it's um, uh, an educational institution at another level. Um, because of the controls over curriculums, the, the expectations of students, the relationship between paying fees and, and, uh, and what is delivered and the not, not straying from the path that is predetermined because there's been a contract which has been made on the basis of those science, education, and research institutions. So the art field has certain advantages. An odd mixture of claims of autonomy, 
incredibly problematic word. We could talk all night about autonomy. But let's just say that the claim of autonomy, the claim to make your own rules, is associated with modern art and with modern artistic practices and therefore is inherited to some extent by what we could call contemporary, yeah, a moment after classic modernism. That, 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 that inheritance of autonomy is something we can instrumentalize. It's kind of nice instrumentalizing autonomy. That's not what you're meant to do with it. Anyway, but maybe that's precisely what's left to do with it, yeah, is, to, is, is actually to instrumentalize it. So an odd mixture of claims of autonomy, frequently an experimental orientation, like something like Irma, which you, I think, inherit from your past, but also a continuing very much in terms of experimenting with what it is to engage with art. Um, and not to do the obvious, not to do the known, but to try and see, seek after the unknown. Um, Self-evident expectation of critical stances and attention to political topics. We're kind of allowed to be political in the art field in ways, again, which I said that the, the, the education field is maybe less able to be political. Um, uh, attention and political in that big sense. Yeah? And I always get in trouble in the Netherlands. You can't use the word political because it just means what, what the government does. And so, and I don't, I don't think here, it's, it's nice being in an English language. I don't often speak in an English, native English language environment, but uh, political, I think we can and understand not in terms of what happens in Canberra, yeah, but in terms of the big thing. Um, attention to political topics enhances the potential for free spaces and turns art institutions into exceptional cases in comparison with other state institutions or those partly funded by the state. So that's why the state is interesting, yeah, because we, in our little, modest, micro-dimension, as he says, yeah, we might be able to reinvent the state. And maybe the state really desperately needs reinventing. Because, as I say, we know the direction of travel. We know where a neoliberal ideology will take the state, which is absolutely in the service of the people who benefit from the kind of subsidies of capitalism which are going on, which are huge. Yeah? We, I mean, let's not, let's not kid ourselves that there's an intimate, there's not really a state and private interest. Yeah? There's a single interest, which is the interest of the ruling class, and that's the interest which we're serving, and that's the interest which the state is serving. And there was a very brief period when the state, through this unsuccessful attempt at democratic representation, actually was held back from being fully uh, joined at the hip with private interest yeah, and with, uh, with, with the interest of the oligarchy, we can call it. Yeah? It's a nice word. We were talking about that with Richard yesterday, the oligarchy. So being joined at the hip with the oligarchy. That time is gone. Social democracy is over. There's no room there. There's no room between them anymore. So in them being joined at the hip, then we maybe really need to reinvent our relationship to that evil twin thing of state and private capital. Yeah? Um, and maybe one way of doing it is thinking about the user. So this is my final quote, and then I'm going to go on to some images and talk a little bit about projects, and then you can stop me when you get bored. Um, so um, the, the, one of the ways that maybe we need to think about the state, and this is something maybe we can learn also from indigenous populations here and elsewhere, is in the idea of use. There's a nice idea about use in relationship to ownership, particularly. One, one nice example is language. Nobody owns a language, but we can all use English. But not one of you owns that language. Not one of you has proprietary rights over the language. You might own particular phrases that you think are yours, but they'll just be taken over by somebody else. And you can't really object to it. You can't even copyright it. 
can copyright is written down, but if it's spoken, you can't really copyright it. No? I mean, that, that can be a problem for capitalism sometimes, but that's why they write it all down. But uh, the idea of language, of the users of language, the user group of language is what's significant rather than who owns that language. Um, in the Ottoman um, Empire, there was a very, I think, a very sensible rule about agricultural land, and it might apply very interestingly here, which is if you did not cultivate that land, if you don't, did not use it for a year and a day, you would lose it. Yeah? Because clearly this land was there to be used. And you could apply that, of course, to housing. That would seem to be eminently reasonable. It used to be applied. In the Netherlands, for instance, there was a law until 2008 that if a building was left empty for a year, you could go and squat it. And you were legal. That's why there was so much squatting in Amsterdam, if you've ever been there and remember that. Yeah? 2008, it was made illegal. That right, that right which was based on use rather than on ownership, was taken away, and the emphasis was given to the owner. You can leave it empty for as long as you like. Huge parts of central London, which is the sort of oligarch centre, yeah, oligarch headquarters, are, are empty. <laughs> They're not being used. The buildings are even collapsing. In large parts, even in a period where there's, there's quite severe housing shortage, because use is less than ownership. So use is quite an interesting tool. Now, use of a state, for instance, users of a state, rather than citizens of a state, rather than passport holders of a state, might be one way in which we can think about the reinvention of the state and our relationship to it. Do we use it? If you don't use, literally, if you don't use your passport for a year, then you have to give it up. You have to get another one. If you don't, if you don't use what the state is constructing for you, then you give it up. If you don't use it and also contribute to it, to it perhaps, the use can be defined in all sorts of ways. But the usership is something, you know, obviously if you're using the land, you're also contributing to its development. Yeah, you're feeding it. You think about how agriculture works. You don't destroy the land. You make use of it and you benefit from it by keeping it in state. Um, so usership about the museum. This is what Stephen Wright, who's very, who's, you know, I'm copying most of the stuff I'm saying here now from, from him, and he's close to the museum. We published this book, and he talks about the museum in this way. What if the museum made way for usership, actually embedding it in its modus operandi? A museum where usership, not spectatorship, which is the traditional relationship. You go to a museum to look. It's somehow it's about visuality. All that stuff. You know, a lot of conservative critics will say the kind of art that's shown here, the kind of art that we've shown by now, isn't visual enough. It's not visual. Where's the, where's the visuality? Well, you know, apart from this double ontology, it can be visual and not visual. It's also that maybe you, if you replace spectatorship, if you get rid of spectatorship, then there doesn't have to be anything to look at because you're busy using it rather than looking at it. So, but what if the museum made way for usership, actually embedding it? In its modus operandi, a museum where usership, not spectatorship, is the key form of relationality, where the content and value it engenders are mutualized for the community of users themselves. Yeah? Again, mutualized relating to the questions of ownership. I'll go through this quickly, actually. Where the usership of museums, like that of languages, produces their meaning. The offline 3.0 museum, that's the physical museum that you have in before you now, like a kind of walk-in toolbox for usership, could be a place where user engagement, user wear and tear, and it's also interesting because if you think about users, then this long trajectory of conservation, this long projection of forever, you know, which museums are implied, kind of becomes quite different. Because if you can't maintain the use of the art, 
then it actually dies. So the conservator's task will not be to preserve this stuff, but it will be preserve this stuff. Yeah? Because this is useless without this. Yeah? This, is a, this is an artwork, but it's a place to talk from and to talk to. And so unless you do the talking from and the talking to, then what's the, what's the point of conserving it? So if you, if you shifted the base from spectatorship, I can look at this, to use, then also fundamentals of that museum rhetoric that we were talking about at the beginning, or museum ambition at the beginning, might start shifting. So the offline museum, like a kind of walking toolbox for usership, could be a place where user engagement, wear and tear, was explicitly acknowledged as generating value. This would be something of value. And as such, everybody was entitled to share that value. So to use it, to use this moment, would be something that would also give all of us credit in certain ways, whether they're financial or economic or academic or cultural or whatever. There would be mechanisms we could invent. It would be fairly straightforward no, to invent those mechanisms. We could do them in the most basic micro way to start with. And that would start to reinvent the notions of citizenship and the notions of relation to the state. Okay, that's my quotes. I'm now 20 past seven, so another 15 minutes, something. Yeah, is it all right? Shall I go on and give you some examples? Because I could stop there. Yeah? Okay, I'm going to talk quickly about a few examples. Which, and, I, and I suppose, you know, one, one thing that's always worthwhile saying is that, is that reality is always disappointing. That's covering myself, of course, but that's true. You know, when you get very concrete and there's always a relationship, which means that these theories are not fully enacted. But also, I think it's what the... A, a critical address that you might give to these is to analyze them in relationship to what I've sketched out and see the extent to which they do fulfill any of the ambitions that we sketched out. So not to bring the old prejudices, we could call it, prejudgments of what the museum should do, which are inherited in all of us from our education and from the many models of museum, but to try and see whether what we are doing in the Van Abbe Museum, how it relates to this sort of matrix of possibilities of usership, of relation to the state, of the question of history, how this matrix sketches out and measures up against these projects. So I mean, I'm doing something really invidious. Yeah? I'm setting up my own criteria and then saying, can, I, can you can do these things, fulfill them? That's really dodgy. But I also don't know how else to do it because there's a kind of, there's a relationship where these projects have come out of that history, but also where these projects have then informed further reading or further thinking and so that thinking means that those, that theory is much more developed than it was at any time when we were doing projects such as this in 2010. I could never have given that lecture before having done these kind of projects. Yeah, so there's a very much a mutual relationship. Um, and, so, and so therefore it seems unfair to pull them apart, but they, are, they have an intimate, an intimacy of relationship with them. Um, okay, in 2010, we asked uh, a Danish group called Superflex, um, who have shown in Australia, I know in Sydney for sure, um, uh, that um, to make an exhibition using our collection initially and then it focused on the minimal and conceptual part um, and then it focused on a, on a particular idea. So in a number of rooms they set up a, a kind of a bit more playful I suppose than traditional um, uh, relationship between uh, Alan Charlton here, um, uh, 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 Carl Andre and Andy Warhol at the end. This was kind of the kitchen if you can imagine it. These are kind of the, the, you know, it has a sort of strange function to it. Well, here you have all the Bruce Nauman videos that we have in the collection, which are most of them actually from the 
from the 70s, um, kind of filling this Donald Judd box, which is in the front, which is one of those empty boxes whose emptiness is, not, is, is important. But the, this was a sort of cacophony of sounds. So this idea of this emptiness being filled by sound was sort of quite strong. Um, and here is a presentation of, I suppose, more sort of workaday functional um, aspects of, of uh, conceptualism and minimalism. And on the back wall you see, which will become the sort of star of the show in a way, uh, a solar wit. Um, which is a solid wit, wit piece, um, a sort of ladder piece, yeah, that you can see this sort of half a swastika basically at the, at the end. Um, and then in the central room, so there's 10 rooms and there's a central room and there's four rooms either side and a mini central room basically is the layout. So there's a central room which is, is called the Room of Honor, sometimes in Dutch, historically it was called that, so that's the place where the most important work would be shown. Um, we set up, this is the central room, and we set up this, this is basically a workshop. It's a workshop with people who are doing um, welding. Um, so here is some welding in place. And what you might see gradually taking shape is something that you remember from back in the image of the soloette on the wall, um, this sort of ladder shape, this slightly swastika shape. And so basically, throughout the exhibition, um, these, these, uh, these workers here, these people that you can see, were sort of performance uh, welding and were producing this uh, soloette um, shape. Um, initially, they were doing about one a week. By the end, they were doing about five a week because you know, people get more efficient and they start to work out how to use the space and things like that. And then, through a lottery system where you would put your name basically into a hat and every week we would draw out one, if there was only one produced, and in the end, five names, you were given them and you took them away. So it was a lottery system. And the project was called Free Soloit, which it was, very literally, but also it was this idea of freeing... The, the work itself from the bounds of the historicization that the museum had put it through. Because if you look at Solowitz's writings, if you look at the sentences about conceptual art, for instance, which was written in the 1970s, he's very concerned with the idea that the work is not the materialization, but the work is the idea, the concept, conceptual. It's in the word, yeah? Um, and yet, the materializations have become the thing that's become valuable. So how do you reconfigure that idea of it not being the object but being the concept and how can you respond to it? And then of course when we first did this and we sent out a press release we were attacked immediately by the picture right people. I'm sure each, each nation state has got a picture right organization that polices copyright and things like that, particularly for artists. Um, and, um, and, uh, and then um, to cut a long story short, Solowitz's widow gave us permission to do this precisely because she said, well you're doing what he wanted. You know, and, and she told us this story, which I think is also famous, about him wanting, after he, really his first sort of major exhibition in Leo Castelli Gallery in New York, he wanted to burn all the work, because he actually didn't at that stage want this work existing, because it wasn't the point. The point was that the ideas were crucial, rather than the, rather than the, rather than the, um, rather than the objects. So here we were, of course, producing objects, but we were also producing objects which were being given away and being uh, circulated in the world and used, and we documented them in different ways. If I get a chance, I might come back to this object of Solowit particularly, because it also features in another project later on. Um, now I'm going to, um, I think, skip through this, but just to say very, very 
simply that we made a, a collection exhibition. Here is some of the collection. You can see so Boyce, uh, Abramovich, um, um, Pistoletto, Warhol again, um, uh, Surasi Kulsawang, a Thai artist who you might know. Um, a whole, a much bigger exhibition than this, but this gives you an idea, a sort of survey of, of, the, uh, of the spaces of the, of, uh, of the collection. Um, and we did it for four roles, four types of people. So not the idea of a public and not the idea of a spectator, but four kinds of roles that you could play as somebody coming to the museum. And we did this very much because we thought that there was so much um, prejudice that people were bringing to a museum collection. And that was prejudice based on, you know, museums should be paintings or why haven't you got a Rembrandt through to, you know, it should be all visual from the local artist or whatever, you know, it should be, it should be visuality or some of the local artists. Um, so, so was it possible to, to, to ask people not to be themselves in the museum and not to sort of be their authentic per, uh, ego saying, I think that this work is all bullshit but to say, if you become a pilgrim or a tourist or a flaneur and take on that role, because of course we are always performing and that's something that we've learned from recent sociology and, and philosophy from Judith Butler onwards. So if you perform this role, then maybe the works will become quite different. Maybe as a pilgrim, you might really like something that as you, you completely despise. You know, because it's possible to shift that. And so we tried to set up this as a way of interpreting. And then there were different, um, there were game masters, people with GM, who sort of were there to, to guide and play the game. We, we tried to use some sort of gaming, um, gaming metaphors and things like that. And there were these, these three tools that we provided quite primitive in a way. One was a map, one was an audio tour, and one was a book. Um, and you could listen to music. This was the flaneur. This was the pilgrim, and this was the uh, so this was the tourist. This was this was the pilgrim, uh, and this was the the flaneur, the person who was uh, filling the book in with sort of observations of what was going on in the institution itself, and then handing that book on to the next one, so that you would read the previous person's comments and things like that. Um, and basically, um, the idea was that that uh, going through this process and uh, engaging with the game masters and things like that, you would end up at this sort of level level two. Um, identity, which would be the worker, which would somehow be the people who are behind the scenes in the museum, you know, the sort of the people who have privileged access, and you would get some privileged access as well to the institution while you're doing it. Here's just examples of the, the way that we rendered the map, again, kind of using, um, you know, certain tropes from, uh, from uh, computer gaming and things like that. Um, I'm going to skip through, uh, maybe talk just very quickly about this. This is something that we started in 2013. Um, uh, this is the room that we developed for the complete collection that we have from 1965 to 1985. The collection goes back to 1909. It's a Picasso is the first one and goes up to today. Um, and here um, you see, uh, basically, this is the exhibition room, which is also the storage of much of this work. And that what happens is that you're available, uh, again I'll skip through, to actually start looking at this material yourself. So these are users. Yeah, so we think about this move from spectators to users. Users are confronted by a space like this rather than by the space of an exhibition. 
and then they go through, they can select here videos which they can later play on cinemas or on their own private screen. Um, here they can select various material and then gradually, so this is fairly self-explanatory, so you know you can, you can pick up your own Warhol in that sense, so there's a sort of literal idea of use. And then you can um, actually make your own displays on these boards and these boards gradually change. So you can sort of communicate juxtapositions, I mean it's a very sort of simple form of curation and, and we need to get it more complicated, but basically the idea is that you can, you can then select from this archive then put works together and then say why you find this interesting and that's something that somebody else can pick up which can then inform their own searching through the archive. Now Arte Util is I think something that you, uh, that Annie spoke about so I'll skip through this. Um, here is the archive and here are some of the projects that we did. This is the Honest Shop which we created and here is somebody buying something so you just write it down and leave the money if you want or not. It was very successful, people left the money. We made a profit I think. This is maybe a nice one, not only because it's my picture, but also because this is, uh, um, in, in Dutch law, uh, one of the arte util, so one of the things, what can, and, what can an art institution do? In Dutch law, a museum director is allowed to marry people. There are certain people that have the, that, uh, that power, and one of them is, is me in my, with my director hat on. Uh, and so here I'm marrying Nuria Grell, who's the artist, that this is at the opening. Uh, with a, uh, a Cuban um, refugee who needs this marriage in order to gain, uh, gain uh, 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 a, state, a legal status within the Netherlands. Uh, and so we could kind of turn this illegal way, which is neither legal nor illegal, we could turn the use of this in order to, to help this person. Um, and I suppose in all these projects, the distinctions between artistic, curatorial, educational, experience design, which is one thing that we talk about in relationship to the flaneur, the tourist, and the, um, and the worker, um, and the pilgrim, um, and other functions have been much less relevant. So in other words, making these distinctions, you have to try and keep these distinctions. We're still quite bad at it, but I think we're getting better at trying to think of ourselves as people who are active within this field without saying you're the curator and you're the technician and, this, and you should never meet except over the discussion of whether the nail is long enough or the projector's bulb has gone out, um, but actually try to see whether those discussions can be slightly different. Um, that, uh, so to enable this idea of the Institute of the Commons, something that Gerald Rownig talks about, um, and looking at uh, a politicized, in other words, taking stances, taking a relationship to the question of how do we live together, which is the core of the political, uh, and a locally engaged museum. Um, and we can maybe talk about that later. I, I'm just going to do Picasso in Palestine because I think that's one that you wanted to talk about, and then I will finish. Um, so this is um, this Picasso in Palestine was from June to July 2011, but it started long before that. It started in 2009, and it started even further back with a series of meetings we had in Eindhoven with a group of artists and activists, curators, from um, the Middle East, because it's, it's within the geography of the Middle East, and this was before the current disasters, yeah? so this was before um, the Syrian war uh, and... Um, when, when Iraq was in a different situation. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, Lebanon every, everywhere, yeah, basically. Before everywhere was as bad as it is now, it's much, much worse. Um, uh, it was possible to, to, it was very difficult to meet up, even, even without 
this, this, this you know, fundamental presence of war in the whole region everywhere. Um, even this was before the, Arab, the so-called Arab Spring and things like that. Um, and uh, and we, um, we were looking at bringing um, uh, artists and, as I say, curator activists and things like that together um, uh, to try and figure out what um, to, um, to figure out what was going on, really, to, so to try and to try and um, see what happens if an Iranian talks to a Palestinian, talks to an Israeli, talks to a, an Egyptian, whether there are commonalities, whether this idea of the Middle East is in any way sustainable as a cultural field, yeah, or whether it's essentially the nation state is fundamentally what divides everything. Um, and at the same time, what could a provincial institution like Van Abba do? Yeah, this question, what could an art institution do? What could it do with these relationships? Because what we saw is this... Uh, again, in this elephantitis model, this growth model, is that the big institutions, the Museum of Modern Art or the Tate, particularly the Anglo-American institutions, which is interesting, of course, that they're the, the leading ones in it because of their imperial uh, um, uh, inheritance yeah, and their knowledge of how to run an empire, um, that those two in particular, those institutions are going out to the Middle East, finding um, sheikhs and, and, uh, and uh, um, uh, uh, one percenters in the Middle East to fund their acquisitions of Middle East work going into Africa, doing the same, going into South America. You know, making sure that they can gather as much material as possible because they need to own the future, yeah? And they need to own all this material. They need to own it, not use it necessarily. They don't show it very often in their institutions. Um, but also that they need to feel that they have now the global art world mapped and not just the, the art world between Berlin and New York. Um, so, at this time, we were thinking, well, maybe, you know, either, either as a small provincial place, we just, you know, can, uh, get busy with our, our local situation. So, sort of Benelux, it's called Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, which was kind of what happened to the collection a little bit in the, in the 1990s, that it sort of retreated to a sort of Belgian... Dutch focus because that was sort of manageable you know, in, the, in the face of this, of this, this terror of globalization. Um, or we try to figure out whether there's a niche within this that we could actually occupy, yes, a little part which would be useful for the people in the region. So that was the result of the, the discussion. One of the results was this idea that um, in Ramallah, um, which is a town in the occupied West Bank uh, of Palestine, um, West Bank of the Jordan, um, but not in the 1948 um, uh, part of Palestine, which was where the Israeli state was set up. Um, that in, in Ramallah, which, is, which performs the function of a kind of capital of a state that doesn't exist. Yeah? Of course, the relationship between Palestine and statehood and nation statehood is, is something that's very fascinating for us to think about, just like the Kurdish situation is also very fascinating for us to think about at the moment. Exactly those people that don't have nation states are maybe the ones that are having to invent them. Although, of course, what a Palestinian will say to you is it's all very well you're talking about the end of the nation state or, not, not, or reinventing the state, it's a, but just give us one first and then we can do something about it. So this idea is quite important. So within this, this, uh, this, this project, in Ramallah, there are and never has been a Picasso shown. One of the ironies, important ironies maybe, is that um, 10, no, 15 minutes, if there was not a wall and a series of checkpoints between, there is, from the center of Ramallah, is the Israel Museum. And that has... Picasso is coming out of its ears, more or less. Yeah, it has about 30 of them, has a huge number, but they, they are not accessible for the 98% of people who do not have a, an ID card. Um, so 
this is um, the uh, journey that took place to, for our Picasso, which was selected by an artist, Khaled Hirani, and is seen as an artistic project and also a curatorial project. I think it somehow sort of mixes all those things. Again, those identities are not clear. Um, who was running the Art Academy at the time, and we created a room in the Art Academy where it could be shown. Um, and then here it is arriving, you see, under great security, because we had huge problems with insurance. One of the ironies is the idea that this could get stolen, because the occupied territories has a great big wall around it, and is in some senses one of the most secure areas in the world. The idea that you could get this out of, the, out of Palestine is, is absurd. Um, but, uh, but nevertheless, it was uh, it was uh, difficult to get insurance and, and took a lot, of, a lot of argument. A very important aspect of this work, um, and maybe I can find a better slide of it, uh, maybe this one is better. Uh, a very important aspect of this work is this is the painting. It was painted in 1943 in Paris. So it was a painting which was painted under one occupation and then goes in a sense, revivifies itself in terms of its context by being shifted to another occupation, and a current occupation and a past occupation. And of course, then you start looking at this knowing it was painted in 1943. So when a time when the Second World War was not obviously going to end well for Picasso or well for those people that were interested in the kind of art that he was interested in. Yeah? So he was painting this. Um, in a, in a, you know, we can think about the colors and about the, the, the nature of the, of the work itself. It's sort of, sort of late, semi-cubist kind of work. It fits within his oeuvre as kind of a mediocre Picasso in many ways. But it's interesting that being emerging from this, uh, from this period, it seems to be particularly, it seems to be the only one and, the only, and only that period would really complicate this question of shifting it to Ramallah. So it was very obvious that we needed to choose this one. We have three or four Picassos in the collection, so it could have been another one potentially, but this one was very important to be the one, I think. Um, and, um, and so we, we, we took it there, we had this, this kind of response, because one of the, I mean, what, you, what, what happens in, in this process of bringing into Palestine is that you start to understand or discover certain things about the place. You know, one is the, it's the double bind in which people live in the occupied territories. On the one hand, they want life to be as awful as possible because it will show that the occupation is completely un unjust. And on the other hand, they want to have a good life because they're human beings just like us. <laughs> so therefore, and this constantly weighs in terms of how you conduct yourself, what you do, how you invest yourself, your time, your energy, your resources into the territory. The extent to which on the one hand, nothing should change, everything should be dreadful. And on the other hand, how can we build a good life? So a lot of people would accuse the, 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 the sort of attention that this got of being, of serving in a way the Israeli state's occupation by saying, well, life isn't so bad. You know, they get a Picasso, you know, what, what are they complaining about in a way? Yeah? And on the other hand, of course, it allowed a discussion in the media, and it, and it was quite a lot of media like this, in the media about something that wasn't the conflict. It also allowed the possibility of people speaking from Ramallah from Palestine about things that weren't throwing stones at guns. So this the, and these sort of paradoxes were what, what came out again and again in all sorts of in all sorts of ways. And maybe um, one last uh, comment about this project. Uh, this is a drawing which was made by. Uh, um, um, Amjad Ghanam, who's, uh, uh, who's now gone on to, 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 be, to do more work in, in, in art, 
Um, but he was always, he's kind of you know he was he was talented as a as a as a drawer, and he sent um, this drawing to the art academy from Israeli prison where he was at the time when the exhibition happened, um, which is you can see the kind of figure of of, uh, of the Picasso, um, and uh, and he said in a in a quite touching um, postcard, he says that he was really happy that the Israeli state gives you uh, they give you basically a postcard every two weeks to send to your family to say that you're still alive, more or less. That's basically the, the purpose. As you say, there's not, there's not much space to write anything. Um, but they're blank. And he said that he was very grateful to the Israeli state for giving them blank postcards, not picture postcards, because it meant that he could do the drawing. It's kind of a, a nice little irony. Um, it also, you know, interestingly, there were, there were cartoons. In, it, it, it became a, a, a sort of issue within Palestine and, and also internationally. There were cartoons... Um, in the in the Palestinian press, which which you know would show an, an image of the of the painting, um, and then would uh, then would say you know what kind of women are they allowing into Palestine now through the Israeli checkpoints or whatever you know there, there was sort of there was a playfulness about it, but it became part of uh, popular culture for a moment in a sense. Um, I could of course go on to lots of things. Um, maybe I'll just show you one thing very quickly. This is a longer project, um, but part of it is to reconstruct, like, there's lots of reasons why, but it's just a, a nice uh, end shot. Um, we um, were working with an artist called Li Mu, reconstructing the collection in a Chinese village. Chinese villages, rural China is one of the big questions that the world will have to face in the 21st century if we think about the moment of danger. It's what's going to happen to that population of a few hundreds of millions. Um, uh, in, in terms of moving into cities which are unsustainable or, or, um, or, or, or not. Um, and this was in, in his home village. And we copied again the same Solowit, just to make reference back to the Superflex. Um, and then it went out into the village and into the world. Initially, it was kind of presented more or less as an artwork, but then gradually it got presented and used in different ways. And finally, it ended up as a, as a hanger for, uh, for bird cages, which then went back and became the drawing, which became an artwork, which came back into the Van Abbe Museum collection, which we can now show how the Solowit has been on its journey through the world. Thank you very much. doing for time? Yeah, anybody, maybe I can get a chair.